0: We're in the uh, in the season of uh, where where the the political powers and the political parties get together and they have their various um, conferences. And uh, Tony, who's part of our church, at the moment he's down in Brighton uh, sorting out the uh, Labour conference and making sure they can listen and hear one another. Um, and uh, next week. Uh, just to balance it all up he's going to do exactly the same for the conservatives um, so I, I tell you that because if uh, there's anything that they're saying that you wish that no one else would hear have a word with him because he just just turn it down and nobody would hear what he's on about in 1904 in 1904 there was a prime minister in the netherlands uh, called abraham Kauper. and uh, he was a prime minister there for four years and was a committed christian and had a radical view about how faith engaged with everyday life. And I'm sure that if we were Dutch, we would know much more about him, but pretty much the one thing that has survived a 100 years from his ministry, really, as prime minister, is this sentence. There is not a square inch in the whole of our human existence over which Christ, who's sovereign of all, does not cry, mine. It's very famous, and if you've read some stuff, you might have come across that quote before. It kind of has survived him. Because what the quote does, there's not a square inch in the whole of our human existence over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. What Cowper as a politician recognized is that faith doesn't operate in some sort of vague spiritual ether of your life. But it actually has to go into the, the, the like the warp and the weft of everyday life. And what's true of the whole of life is true of ourselves. There's no area of our lives where Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not want to put his finger and go, That's mine. That's mine. So, consequently, for those who follow Jesus, one of the basic questions is, who are you? Who are you? And the radical news of the New Testament is this. You are not primarily defined by your gender or your social status. You're not primarily defined by your race or the relationships you're in or your age or the job you do, or the money you have. That is not your primary identity. Your primary identity is in relation to God through Christ. That actually you're his. And all those other things change, you see. But actually that never changes. When I was um, was 16, God got hold of me. In a, in a strange way, and some of you know the story, and I'm not going to go into it, but in a strange way, God got hold of my life and kind of just got me. And there was a moment, there was a real definite moment. It was a Friday afternoon in Highlands Grammar School in Halifax, a scene of much spiritual revival, where there was a moment where I knew that the big crossroads of life opened up for me. And God got hold of me that afternoon through a whole, re- for me, not for you, but for me, remarkable set of circumstances. And I said yes to God that afternoon. About four o'clock on a Friday afternoon in Highlands. Now, that was, that was only about 20 years ago when I was 16. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> that is getting on for 35 years ago. Well, not quite, but it is. No, no, it is. And lots of things have changed. But this is the really important thing. And I think it's important for me to keep reminding myself, but I think it's really important for you to be reminded of as you look at someone who's preaching. God did not get hold of me so I would be a preacher or a church leader. God got hold of me So I would be his. One day, there will be a day when I won't be doing this sort of stuff. You'll decide he's at it. Hopefully not by the end of next week, but it'll come. But God will never stop holding me. Because I I wasn't got hold of to be a certain type of person. I was got hold of to be his. And so were you. And your context keeps changing. You get older. You have different relationships. You have good relationships and relationships that don't work out as you expected. You have children and they grow up and they leave. And then you find yourself a grandma. And then before you know where you are, you're a great grandma. And you're planning on staying alive long enough to be a great, great grandma. And life changes. Your body gives up a little bit. But actually, the central core of you never stops being Christ's. We just work it out in our daily lives. Who are you? You're Christ's. But as I said, this call of Christ is never done in some sort of airy-fairy world. It's worked out in the nitty-gritty of your day-by-day life. It's worked out in your friendships. It's worked out at work. It's worked out with children. It's worked out in aging. It's worked out in church. And it's worked out in marriage. These are the contexts in which your daily discipleship of Jesus are worked out. This is how God gets hold of you and wants to use you for his glory. It's also the place where we are shaped. It's the places where we become the people we turn out to be. This morning, what I wanna do in a few, for a few moments is look at one of those contexts, and the context is marriage. The Bible actually says a lot about marriage. It was, it's, it's sometimes the obvious thoughts are the ones that hit you the most. So like, one of the thoughts that hit me early this week was just the obvious thing, that out of 10 commandments, So Moses goes up the mountain. God says, these are the big commandments I really want everybody to know. And the rest of the commandments, kind of working out what these will look like. But out of the commands, two of them are about your relationship with your partner. Don't commit adultery. And don't covet your neighbor's wife or the donkey. Which in our (laughs) I'm just saying what the Bible says. In our context, this would be: don't wish that you had more than you have, and don't regret the commitments you've made. And don't think, if only I was in that situation, life would be so much better. Kind of intriguing. That the beginning when the law is given two of the 10 are about this basic fundamental uh, relationship. Because all along, the Bible, I think, is aware that the temptation for all of us who are God's people, the people who God has got hold of, is that we're always in danger of conforming to whatever the culture around us says. And, And I think one of the things that happens as you grow as a Christian Is that you become more aware, you should become more aware of a number of things. Firstly, you should become more aware about the sort of person you are. I've said it before, and hey, after so many years, I've said most things before. (laughs) That's no surprise now, is it? But this is the deal. One of the basic fundamental spiritual disciplines is this Will you confess your sin? Will you own up? Or do you, either on your own or certainly with anybody else, just want to sort of like brush it to one side, I'm doing okay. Or do you quickly say, oh God, forgive me my sins, but I'm not going to get specific with you. You see, this is the thing. The more specific you are, the more self-aware you become. And wonderfully, the more open you are, the more forgiveness flows into the area that could be just dark. Does that make sense? So actually one of the things about growing as a disciple is you become more self-aware. The other thing you become aware of greater is how are you being shaped in a certain way that is different than the way that's the surrounding culture? What are your hopes? What are your ambitions? What are your fears? What are your goals? And how different are they than the rest of the surrounding culture? And that's certainly true, I think, of marriage. And the Bible always is trying to help people who are married work out. How do I work it out in this context? The Ten Commandments. And then Paul and Peter, in pretty much most of their letters that they're writing, they will touch on it. Directly. Because it's not this spiritual life, as I said, it's not on the spiritual ether. It's like in the midst and the nitty-gritty of basic basic relationships. Why is God so bothered about marriage? I think the first reason is way back in Genesis, right at the beginning, the way we were made for each other as men and women involves that sexual union. And Way back there's something mystical about sex. We live in a culture where sex is really degraded. It's a consumer thing. I don't, some of you who are much younger than me will be much more aware of this than I am, of the expectations of relationships. But it's like sex is, we just live in this highly sexualized culture and I know that some of you have got younger children, one of the things you really need to, you know, we uh, who are older, we need to help and pray for you. Because one of the things you're going to have to do is bring your kids up in a very different culture than I had to. And certainly, with respect, some of you had to. But the Bible wants to say, actually, sex is never just an act. It's never just a, a trade-off. It's never just leisure activity. It's always mystical. And there's something that creative about it. It creates a unity. When I was teaching at Bible college, I used to have students come to me and say, oh, all we need to do, you know, some students at Bible college, ironically, did not want to do any study. I don't know what they thought they were signing up for, but they just didn't (laughs) want to do any study. They paid all this money, and then they'd come, and they'd go, oh, you don't need to do any of this stuff. It was like, you're in the wrong place. You should have gone to Pontins. But anyway, I used to say that, but anyway. um, but well, some students used to come to me and say, oh, you just need to pray, and we just need to go back to the first century church. And I always used to say to them, so which one do you want to go back to? Corinth? How do you fancy leading that one? Because in Corinth, amongst many other problems that they had, were people coming to church to gather on a Sunday, who on Saturday had been sleeping with the temple prostitutes. Because that's what you did in Corinth. Paul with Corinth is trying to help them work out you can't be the same as the rest of your culture because actually sex really matters. And the second thing, we could say lots, why why does God want to guard people, to guard marriage and to be thinking through how do you grow as a Christian here is because actually all of our lives, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're widowed, whatever state you're in, uh, in terms of formal relationships, wherever you are, you're actually living as the light of the gospel. You're suggesting to a community around you, this is what it means to follow Jesus in this circumstance, in this circumstance. If you've got a Bible or you can get to one easily, turn to 1 Peter 3. Peter is writing, 1 Peter 3, it's kind of like towards the end of the New Testament if you're not quite sure where it might be, um, so it's sort of, it's that back end. Peter is writing to people who are Christians in Turkey. They're in towns and cities in Turkey, scattered around, and, and Peter's trying to help them work through what does life look like once you follow Jesus. And um he does, in chapter 1, something about the whole gospel. Chapter 2, he talks about the church. And then he turns halfway through chapter 2 to guide people. How do you live in society? In chapter 2, he'll talk a lot about how do, you, how do you live if you're a slave? How do you live as a follower of Jesus if you're a slave? And then in chapter 3, he turns uh, to marriage context. And he says this. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed. Abraham called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what's right and you don't give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the precious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let me speak directly into, for those of you that are married right now, let me just really go for that. Paul, Peter is speaking to wives and to husbands, obviously. But he is writing to them and and saying to them, how do you live missionally in this new situation? How do you live differently? Everything that Peter writes in that first half of that chapter would have been outrageous to people who were listening. That's the first thing. There's nothing that Peter writes there that everybody would have gone, it's natural. Everything Peter's saying at that point is outrageous. He's saying to wives. It's interesting, because one of the things that often, when we, we have conversations in church, Big C church, about relationships between the genders, one of the things that comes up is this idea of, well, they keep talking about this submission. Now, the problem is, I think one of the problems is, when we read submission, we think of status. And I think what Peter's recognizing is, it's a strategy, it's not status, it's strategy. He's talked about it with slaves. He says, slaves, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. Now, he's not saying a slave is not worth the same as a master. That would be outrageous because of the gospel. So it's not about status. It's actually about strategy. What's the strategy? The strategy is that those that you live with, God can work in their lives because of you. That was an unthinkable thought for every Roman woman and man. Just to push it, one. this is what's going on there. In their context, the man of the house decided what the religion of the house was. Here, Peter's saying, the way you live and act, God can use you to change the religion of the house. And nobody would expect that to be from a woman. That's outrageous. It's subversive. And the strategy is, is, well, they may not believe your words, but they might be won over. By your behavior. Secondly, he says your worth doesn't come from the way you paint your face, and it doesn't come from the way you, the clothes you wear, or the jewelry you have. Your beauty is not painted on. Your worth as a woman is not just you're more than a. I suppose what we would say is you're more than a clothes hanger. That would be unusual in Rome to be told that a woman is worth more than the way you look or the way you dress or the way other people look at you. Your worth comes from your relationship with God. This is clearly relevant regardless of your status and regardless of your state of life. I would want to say, and I want to say it really gently, that in our context, in our world, I think it's easy probably when you get to a certain stage of life for people to overlook you and for you to feel overlooked. And Peter says, that's not the way God deals with you. And then the third thing Peter says to women, you will stand in this rich tradition of women who were used For the mission of God, if you do what's right and you don't give way to fear. That's kind of like, wow. Peter's telling women in the churches in Turkey, actually, because of Christ, we're radically different. Then he turns to husbands. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Does this mean they are weaker? No, 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 no. It's like that picture of how do you handle something that is really worthwhile? And as heirs with you, equal heirs of the gift of life. Those of you who got married, what did you expect? Well, we could be there a long time talking about that. But let me tell you the obvious point. When you met that person down the aisle, what you met was a sinner. (laughs) Freda just bashed Mike in the ribs and said, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's the first time I've ever seen Frida. I've known Frida for nearly thirty years now. I've never known her respond like that in a sermon before. Good on your girl. That's the truth. You married a sinner. So we get disappointed when we've recognised that. For those of you that still are married, how can God use you? Whether the other person is a Christian or not a Christian, how can the other person use you to be good news? It's not about nagging. It's not about always going on. But actually, the big truth is this. God can use you. And for those blokes, I think Peter's challenge is a really simple one. Is your wife Thriving better because she married you. <laughs> For those of you who are uncertain at that point, Mike wanted to point out one or two things to Frida. <laughs> How long have you two been married? No, yeah, well, yeah, why not? Go on, yeah, why not? But... I was just thinking it was a shame if it all fell apart this morning. That's what I was actually <laughs> thinking. <laughs> those are two challenges for those of you that are married. Do you believe that God can use you and through you can reach the man you're with? And is the woman you're with better off because you're with her. So, where do we go with this? This is, these relationships need one another. I don't mean two people, I need they need all of us. The reason Peter writes to a whole church is because it's a whole church thing. It needs, one of a, it needs us all to consciously be aware of praying for one another in the context that we're in, because every context br- brings its own challenge. And every context can be difficult, but it needs all of us to take that on board. It's not just a niche thing for a few people, it's a whole church thing for all of us. It needs some of us to be honest sometimes when things aren't great that we might help one another grow. But I think the other thing is, for those of us who are in those married contexts, Peter ends that little bit by saying, I'm telling you all this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let me, again, really be blunt. You can't treat your partner like rubbish and expect God to hear your prayer. You can't treat your partner like rubbish and expect God to hear your prayer. And I've got to say, I mean, because of my job, I go around lots of places and I know there's sometimes, you know, abuse doesn't just happen out there. Abusive relationships happen within churches. And they happen because of lots of reasons, but at least some of the reasons are about, and I've got to say, insecure men dealing with their own wives, wanting to put them down, wanting to make them smaller, not wanting to enable them to become bigger. I've got to say, if we as men act like that to women, forget about whether you're married or not at this point, if you act like that to women, what makes you think God's going to hear your prayer? I remember dealing with a couple years ago and they were just at each other, they fought, physically fought with one another. I was completely at my depth. And I said, you know, so this must clearly have an effect on... And the bloke said, no, 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 no. He said, because after it all, I go back upstairs and I pray and I feel very close to God. And you could hear the, the sort of the jaw hit the floor. Because let me tell you what's happening in that situation. It's an extreme situation, to make a point. What's happening there is that bloke is absolutely self-deluded. I don't care what he feels. God doesn't hear his prayer. So be good to one another. God can use you. but you've got to enable the other person to thrive. How it works out, of course, that's not my business. Who deals with the money? Who deals with the the, the stuff that goes wrong? That's not my business. There's no one biblical way to run a household. That's not the case. But one last thing. How do you make sense of it for those of you that have been disappointed with marriage? And those of you that grieve because of marriage, either because of the marriage you're in, or because the marriage you had. I'm aware that it's, it's obvious that that marriage becomes one of the the massive hopes for some people and when it goes wrong it brings the greatest grief because so much was hoped for. And there will be people in the room who are grieving what isn't reality. And there's no, I I really hope you wouldn't expect me to say there's anything easy to respond to that. And as I was thinking of praying about today, this is the bit that's the hard bit (coughs) to get right. I just want to say, I think you're absolutely right to be so disappointed and to grieve so much. Because I think there's something deep inside us that is a shadow of what God is. And for those of you that grieve what you've lost and grieve what didn't happen, I think you're absolutely right to grieve. And that process of grieving sometimes takes longer for others than it does for others and all the rest of it. None of us are sort of like on a conveyor belt. We're not the same. But some of us still live with that reality. You're right to grieve because one of the metaphors that God uses throughout the Bible for him and his people is the metaphor of marriage. And I think in some way, What we want to be true is an imitation of what God wants for his people. This is how the Bible ends. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. The old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. The central metaphor from beginning to end is that the way God sees you and me and us as the gathered people of God is where his bride and he will be united with his bride. And we who love and long and have so much desire, God says, ultimately, it will be fulfilled in me. Not in each other, actually, but in me. Because none of us are strong enough, none of our relationships is strong enough, married, single, friendship, whatever it may be, to fulfill the other person to such an the, the extent that that's all they need Ultimately, our relationships and our, our love will be fulfilled by God, in God. And the fact that the metaphor is used so often, I think is not an accident. And I think that sometimes the fact that it's so painful for some people, and it's so grievous for some people, is because it's, it's kind of like all we're longing for. And God says... I've not forgotten. And there is movement towards this so that actually all the pain will be healed. The pain of disjointed relationships, the pain of the past, the pain of things that we wished were different, it will be healed and the tears will be wiped away. Final thought in order that that's not pie in the sky when you die, we live out together as best we can the hope with one another for one another. So that actually together we're trying to model what does it look like when God's all in all. When actually you're not defined by did your relationships work or did they not work? Did someone reject you or did you reject someone else? You're not defined by how other people think you are. You're defined by how God sees you and how God sees each of us. It's kind of inevitable when I put my foot into this sort of uh, arena, that it's possible that people will mishear what I've tried to explain, but what I want you to do is, well, what's the thing, the good thing, the encouraging thing, what's the hopeful thing? What's the word of hope to you today? What's the thing you need to do? Possibly for some of you, it's actually a wake-up call. You need to do something. What does God God ask of you? Maybe for some of us, it's the way we see things. How do we see the situations we're in and that we've been in or that we might be in? Lord, I pray simply that your word would take root in our heart. Lord, that your hope would be the hope that we carry, the hope for a future that is different than the present. Thank you that it will not always be like today. Thank you, Lord, for the reality of the calling that you've placed us into. And I want to pray for those of us who are married at the moment. Lord, I pray that as men we would carry the load and we would be good news for our wives. And I pray uh, for the women who are married, Lord, I pray that they might be hopeful about the way you can use them in their own situations. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, Lord, that we might be able to help one another, not defined on our relationship status, but actually enabling one another to live well for you, to follow you, to act out this discipleship in our everyday contexts. Lord, may your spirit rest on us, we pray.